Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I am Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. And today, my guest is Nancy Siegel, author of the book, Deliberately Divided, Inside the Controversial Study of Twins and Triplets Adopted Apart. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my guest today. Dr. Nancy Siegel is professor of psychology at California State University, Fullerton and director of the Twin Studies Center. She has authored over 250 scientific articles and six books on twins and twin development, and she lives in Southern California. Welcome, Dr. Siegel. Thank you so much. So why don't we start with first congratulating you on the book, and I'm wondering, as it's coming out, how are you feeling? Well, thank you for the congratulations. And I'm very excited about this book. It's been out now for several months. And I'm excited and pleased because while it's a rather dark side to the history of twin research, I believe it's important to keep it there and let people know about it because this was a terrible example of how two very prominent researchers deliberately divided twins and studied them without telling the parents, the adoptive parents, that they were raising a twin child. I think it's important for everyone to know this, not just twin researchers, but anyone who engages in human research, to know that you cannot do these kinds of things. You cannot jeopardize or compromise human subjects' welfare and hope to get away with it. So that's why I wrote this book. And I will say, Dr. Duarte, that it wasn't the easiest book to write because some people who were connected to the study did not wish to speak to me. And that was a different experience because I've written six other books, as you mentioned, and everyone loves twins. There was universal interest in it. People couldn't wait to talk to me and share their stories with me. But this was one example where that didn't happen. And so at first I got a little bit miffed by it and I was feeling not very good about this project. But then I realized that they're not wishing to speak to me was data. 
it conveyed an important message that they did not want connection to the study. So I began to use that in a positive way. And enough people did speak to me and some spoke with the understanding that I would not mention their name. And I was very careful not to do that if that was the request. So you have, I think, the most complete story of this particular project. So let's go back in time a little bit. Can you tell us, first of all, what is your professional background and how did you get how did you become interested and involved in twin studies? Okay. Well, my professional background is I hold a PhD in behavioral sciences from the University of Chicago. And my interest in twin studies dates back to the date of my birth because I'm a fraternal same-sex twin. And I was always fascinated by the fact that my twin sister and I were raised together, same parents, same home, same friends, same schools, and we ended up being so very, very different so different from the identical twins that I met at school. And to me, a genetic perspective on human development just always made perfect sense. So when I got into college and began to study psychology, which I loved, and then graduate school, human development, which I loved, this all made so much sense to me. And the twin studies were so rich and so vibrant and so informative that I just knew that was going to be my life's career. And I'm really thrilled with it. It's almost been like a candy store. It hasn't felt like work at all. And there were so many new topics and new avenues that I've gone down that I never, ever would have anticipated. So when I got to Cal State Fullerton as a faculty member, I decided to develop my own twin study center. And I'm very glad I did. It has several purposes, namely to support my research and that of my colleagues and students, and also to serve as a research center for interested individuals in the public sector. We provide information, speakers. I have a lot of articles and books in a very unique and exclusive library. So for our readers, sorry, for our listeners who are not familiar, what is a twin study and what does it look at? So the basic logic of the twin method is very simple and very elegant. You simply compare the similarities of identical twins who share all their genes to the similarities of fraternal twins who share half their genes on average. And if identical twins are more alike with respect to intelligence, personality, um, sexual orientation, whatever, this demonstrates that the genes do play a role in the development of the trait. Not that they play the only role. We're all a total mix of genes and environment, but it gives you a handle on where we're coming from and where we may be going in the future. So it's a very simple and you know, easy to do kind of study, although twins are relatively rare in the population. And then studies of twins raised apart are a variant on that classic method. So if identical twins are raised apart in separate environments, and we find that they end up being very, very much alike in so many surprising ways, this also tells us that the genes are propelling them to seek out certain people, places, and events in their respective settings. So just to be clear, a couple points that I want to make clear that first of all, twin studies are not studies about twins. They're studies that utilize twins in order to better understand the role of genetics in human behavior and human traits. From your book, it sounds like it, there are ways of trying to settle the question, the, the nature versus nature question. The other thing that I guess I'm taking away is that twin studies, it, it, there's some twin studies where people have, the, the twins that are studies have been raised together and somewhere they've been raised apart. And I'm wondering if you could tell us 
how that happens. I mean, how, how do twins that have been raised apart come to participate in the same study? Well, first of all, to your first point, which I think is very well taken, you can actually do twin research at two levels. You can use twins as a model for looking at the genetic and environmental influences on behavior that apply to everyone. But there are also twin studies that look specifically at some twin issues. Should you separate twins in school? Should you dress them alike? How do you parent? So there are a subclass of twin studies or a subset, I should say, where it's just for the twins. Now, having said that, there there are studies of twins who are raised apart. I was a very active player in one of them, the one at the University of Minnesota that began in 1979 and ended in 1999. I was there for nine of those 20 years. And twins are separated for a variety of reasons, different today than in the past. In the past, the ones I studied, mothers, single mothers had twins and it was a social stigma. It was easier to maybe give them to an adoption agency and and sometimes adoption agencies could make two fees by using two different families or mother died in childbirth and they were given the different parts of the family. Or um, during the war, sometimes twins were separated. Today, it's a a different kind of story. Um, Today, twins are sometimes separated because parents cannot afford to keep two children, so they might keep one or they might give both away. I've been studying a number of twins who were from South Korea And that has been the case. And of course, the internet has helped us to find a number of them. But there are also some very odd reasons why twins would be separated. One of the cases we studied was a very well-to-do upper middle class family who had an idea that they wanted to have the ideal family. And they had a daughter. And then to them, two children was perfect. Well, the second pregnancy was twins, so they gave one away. I've never heard this happening except for this one case. In another case, we studied twins from China. One was at her grandmother's house. The other one was at home for the afternoon. But because of political events happening, one of them could not get back home. And so they were separated until they were in their 30s or 40s. So there are some odd events that keep people apart. I suspect now with the war in Ukraine, I've heard about some separated siblings. I'm sure there are some separated twins because of that. So... Let's talk about the study that's the focus of your book, which is the study that took place at the Louise Wise Adoption Services in New York City. Tell us about that study and why it's been so controversial. Mm-hmm. Well, the study was actually a collaboration between the Louise Wise Services and the Jewish Board of Guardians, which is now the Jewish uh, Board of Family and Child Services in New York City. So. It began in the 1960s, and Dr. Viola Bernard, who was a psychiatric consultant and a faculty member at Columbia University, had this notion that twins were better off being raised separately to develop their own identities and to avoid parental overburdening. She claimed that it was based in the literature of the time, but she never cited specific studies. There is no such literature. I have combed the literature. I've talked to people who were around then. There was no such literature. And she was a very close colleague and friend of Dr. Peter Neubauer, who headed the Child Development Center at the Jewish Board of Guardians. And the going wisdom, is this is so interesting, has always been that Dr. Bernard separated the twins and Dr. Neubauer then capitalized on a naturally occurring situation. And that's what I always believed. But 
I've changed my mind having done the research for this book, and I really don't know what came first. I sometimes wonder if maybe his idea for the study came about and she still provided the rationale for why twins should be separated. So we don't know whether the study came first or the separation. It's unclear to me. And in speaking to one of the relatives, uh, she just spoke about how they were so closely intertwined, Dr. Bernard and Dr. Neubauer, that it's really hard to know what came first. And that's really my thinking now. Um, Studying twins raised apart from infancy is really the researcher's dream, I have to say. I mean, what, what they did was absolutely amazing because the previous reared apart twin studies had only looked at, or mostly looked at, adults, twins separated at birth, but then reunited as adults. So all of the data they collected was retrospective. In this case, they had the incredible opportunity of following development in real time. So researchers went to the homes of these separate adopted awake twins, and they would interview mothers, they'd observe the children, take photographs of the children, test them. I mean, this was real-time stuff. So I can see the excitement generated. However, ethically, this was abysmal. They were playing with lives. There were parents who went to Louise Wise and said, you know, we're childless, we have money, we're desperate for children, we want twins if you have them. They would willingly have taken twins into their home, and there were twins being given up for adoption. But they never received them, and sometimes they received only one. I mean, it, it was just unconscionable and to my way of thinking. And just to be clear, I think you mentioned this in the book, those parents, even when they were given a twin, they were not told that that child was a twin. Is that That's correct? correct? That's correct. They had no idea. And some of these twins met through mistaken identity years later because they all lived in the New York City, New Jersey, Long Island area. And uh, the triplets, the three identical triplets that were in the film, Three Identical Strangers, they met at the age of 19 through mistaken identity when, when two went to the same college and one was mistaken for the other. And then their pap- picture was in the paper and the third one saw it. And this is a shock. This is an absolute shock to suddenly realize that you could have had this celebrated relationship. After all, twinship is highly celebrated around the world. And, you know, anyone who loses a twin goes through devastating grief. So the idea that somebody would take away this relationship from you just due to blind scientific ambition, that hurts. That really hurts. Sure. You know, it's always easy to look back and and to see the errors uh, that were made before. But at the time, was there some sort of way to justify this that, that seemed to make sense at the time in that context? If there is, Dr. Duarte, I don't know what it is. She, Dr. Bernard, rationalized it based on what she called the scientific literature at the time, which said that twins' identities would not develop fully unless they were separated. And she claimed that once they had solid identities, if they should meet, then they would be better prepared to manage a relationship. But I can tell you that the identical twins who did meet later on, a number of them, while they got along well in the beginning, had a lot of bumps along the way and things they could not resolve. Because remember, they did not have a shared social history. And that's the trouble. 
lot of us have siblings. I have a sibling. I have a twin sister. And we have our bumps along the way. But we know underneath it all that we love each other and family loyalty is very strong. But when you're a reared apart twin, it's new and you can walk away. And some of them have, which is very, very sad. So how long did this study go on for? How many sets of twins or triplets were involved? And I could throw in a third question. What were the research questions that they were trying to address? So the study went on for close to 20 years, from between 1961 and 1980. And every pair of twins was studied until they were about 12 years old. So there was a lag time. You know, the one studied 1960, they were done by 1972, like that. It's estimated, and I think this is accurate, that there were 21 twin children involved. So, well, let me put it this way, 21 who were separated, but they were not all studied. Dr. Bernard and Dr. Neubauer only studied identical twins, which was a real mistake because fraternal twins are the perfect control. He separated four or five sets of fraternal twins. Why? I don't know, because they don't have the same identity problems that identical twins might have because they don't look the same. So we estimate that there were 21 children in total. Now, in terms of those that were studied, the three identical triplets, and then there were four sets actually five sets of identical twins. So that's 10 plus three is 13. But one of those sets was dropped very early on because they had very different adoption histories. And then in another case, one was dropped after about age six or seven because they met accidentally. They didn't actually meet, but they learned about each other accidentally. And this is awful. Once that happened and they hadn't met, The parents of one of the twins told Dr. Bernard, and she said, you must keep it from the girls. They should not know that they're a twin. So you can imagine how difficult this was for parents to keep this important life event secret. And then when the truth was revealed, when the girls met accidentally, when they were almost 18, and the parents then admitted they knew, well, you can imagine what that does to parent-child relationships. It really erodes trust almost overnight. So what Bernard hoped to, you know, overcome, I think she created many more problems in its wake. One thing I want to say, too, is that the researchers were were within their legal bounds. They did not do anything that was legally prohibited. But just because something is legally okay does not mean it's ethically okay. And in the book, in Chapter 19, I have a very comprehensive treatment of the legalities and ethical issues. I have interviewed some of the top ethicists in this country. And to put it very simply, is just how I said it, that just because something is legally okay does not justify that you do it. And what what was the purpose of the study? The purpose of the study was to see how different parenting styles interacted with identical genotypes to produce different outcomes. But I will say that despite the different rearing styles that were observed, The twins were enormously similar. And these psychoanalytically oriented researchers were shocked, absolutely shocked. I mean, they expected a lot more difference. But I will say that Peter Neubauer was a bit ahead of his time in this respect. He was interested in genetics. And I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that most psychoanalysts are less interested in genetics than than other things. But he was interested in that as well as, as social upbringing. But at any rate, it was very exciting. I mean, some of the researchers I spoke to said that when they got together for their meetings, I mean, it was 
it was just overwhelming the excitement and 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 just the the uh, energy in the room was incredible. So how does the story end? Uh, what were the results of the study? Well, was it a success? You know how how did the study come to an end? Well, that's that's those are all fabulous questions, and they have rather sorry answers because they ran out of funding. That's one thing. It was a very expensive study. And I, but more than losing the finance, I think it was that they were very afraid of lawsuits raised against them by the twins and by the families. In fact, there's a whole chapter that deals with that. And they worried um, about these kinds of things. They said, well, we don't want to tell the twins. We want to protect them. That's why they put the data, sealed it at the Yale University archives until 2065. They said it was to protect the twins. I think it was to protect themselves. I honestly believe that. Now, in terms of was it a success? No, it was an abysmal failure. And here's why. There were three or four publications that came out of it. Detailed case studies. In one case, they talked about matched samplings. A matched sampling. I went back and read that study carefully, and I believe those were twins. I'm convinced of it. In fact, one of their colleagues referred to that paper in one of her papers as a twin pair. So I think she knew something that I had not seen. What is match sampling for our listeners who are well, not familiar? They, they, they called this these match. They called these two boys match samplings because they said they were both adopted at the same time and this and this. But but they were twins. I mean, there's no question. And the same information appeared in other cases. I mean, there was a lot of overlap in these three or four papers that came out. They were just case studies. They were not really research oriented or research based. They were not quantitative at all. Then there was a contract with Yale University Press for a book on this. One of the problems was they could not get informed consents, which they finally decided to send out. After all, in the late 70s, we had the establishment of IRBs and much more attention to informed consent, and they could not get them. Some of the parents questioned you know, confidentiality, things of that sort. So they, they wondered, maybe we should publish the book in another country to, to, to sort of hide it. I mean, they, they weren't willing to give this up. These are crazy ideas. There was another researcher, Dr. Jewel Nielsen, who published a Rita Part Twin study in 1960, or 1966, and it was from Denmark. Now, he published his work in English, and one of the investigators said he did it in English to hide it from the Danish population. But that's crazy. He published this stuff in English to reach a wider audience, and he, he... spoke to many, many international groups. So, but Neubauer and Bernard and their group, they were hiding this stuff. They got upset when too many people learned about it. And yet they persisted. And, you know, when you think about it, this wasn't just a one-shot decision made on one moment. This study was carefully thought out and, and took place over almost 20 years. So, and now, I went back and visited Peter Neubauer before his death. He died in 2008. I was at his apartment in 2004. And he expressed no remorse at the idea of separating the twins. Absolutely none. And he was a survivor of Nazi persecution. He grew up in Vienna, and he had to leave Vienna to complete his medical studies in Switzerland. So you would think that somebody with that kind of a background would have much more sensitivity to social relationships and family relationships and twinship in particular, but he had none. 
And I even argued with him on, on things that are factual. For example, he said to me he didn't think the triplets were identical because there were two placentas. So I explained to him that early splitting, or we think early splitting twins, or at least one third of twins, do have separate placentas, separate fetal membranes like chorions and amnions. But he refused to believe that. That's factual. That's documented in the medical literature. I didn't invent it. I didn't even show it. It's there. But that's what he was like. And some people said that while he was brilliant and charming and all of that, he was very stubborn in some ways. And I think that was quite So you have done such a comprehensive treatment of this study, of this part of scientific history. What is it that you hope readers and our listeners will learn from this that's, that's relevant today? I think there are many lessons that can be learned from this particular book and this particular study. And one is that you can never treat human subjects as subjects. I call them participants. You must think very carefully about their welfare and not let it get in the way of your scientific ambition. That's one very important thing. And I think that it's a great example to everyone of how not to do research. In fact, I end the book with that particular sentence. That's what I want to leave people with. And I also want to convey that twin research is a very well-respected, very valuable, and very informative methodology. So I don't want people to get a negative view of twin research based on this book. But I still think at the same time, it's important to preserve the history of twin research, to keep this one in the public consciousness, and to really um, remember it at times, teach our students this, so that this is never repeated. Another lesson to this too is that some of the research assistants, you know, then college students, now grown people and in practice. So one of the women told me that she's never discussed this with anyone but her husband. She feels so ashamed of it because she would go one day to one twin's family and the next day to the other twin's family. And she knew something very fundamental about these twins that the parents didn't know. And the only thing different about the kids were their accents, Long Island, New Jersey, something like that. But it raises the question, you know, how far do you go along with a mentor that you disagree with? And I know graduate students, I've been one myself, that we, we think of our mentors as gods, that they can, they can open paths and doorways for us and really make our careers. But at a certain point, you have to be able to sleep at night and say, I did the right thing. And I think there's nothing more important than being able to take pride and feel that what you did showed your integrity. You know, I, I like that the, I enjoy that the book is, the chapters are laid out by twin pairs. You know, each one looks at a different twin pair. Is, is there one that stands out to you that you might tell us about to, to bring some of these issues to life? There are actually two, and I'll talk about one identical pair and one fraternal pair. I think that aside from the triplets, which I think most people know about and many people have seen the film, the pair that really stands out to me are Melanie and Ellen. And they met by chance because Ellen's aunt confused a woman at a host, a hostess in a pancake shop at an IHOPs for her niece. And when they met, I mean, they had so many similarities in common from their taste in food to their small bladders, which made them go to the bathroom often. And their appearance, of course, was striking. But they've had certain bumps along the way. And they both said that they, they left college after one semester because it was a, a scary experience for them. But had they had their twin with them, they might have been able to withstand that. So 
there were so many things that you know would have made their lives smoother had they been raised together. And even now, you know, they're in one of their separate periods. I expect they'll they'll join again because I'm having a big book party in New York City and they're both invited. So I'm hoping that that will be a time to smooth out their differences. The other pair I want to mention was a pair that was not studied, but one that I researched very carefully, fraternal twins, Michelle and Allison. And when Michelle heard about the movie, Three Identical Strangers, she decided to throw her DNA into Ancestry.com because she was a Louise Wise adoptee from the mid-60s, right? And By so, the way, that, that movie that you're referencing, the three three perfect strangers, they are they were part of this study. The three identical strangers are they have a, there's a chapter in there. There's a chapter in there. It's called three versions of the same song. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, and also we studied them at the University of Minnesota, so I, I know them pretty well. At any rate, so Michelle and Allison, it turned out that it came up immediate family member is connected to you and. It turned out that she had the same birthday, same oh year, and lo and behold, it was a fraternal twin. So Allison lived in California, Michelle lived in New Jersey, but they got together often. They loved each other. They got along so well. They were absolutely brilliant together. Sadly, Michelle came down with pancreatic cancer in the last year or two, and she passed away last June. So the twins only had three and a half years. So mm. in a sense, Allison lost her twin sister twice. And that to me is just so sad. I mean, I, I just, I hope that, I know that Neubauer and Bernard are no longer here with us, but maybe some of their colleagues, maybe some of their children will hear that story and feel terrible about it because no one has made amends. No one has ever reached out and tried to made any kind of amends for what was taken from these twins and their families. It's something that you address in your book that I'd like to discuss is what is unique about twin relationships? The identical twin bond, the identical twin bond in particular is what's unique. It's one of the most selfless relationships that I've ever studied. It's completely It's based on love. It's based on understanding and compassion. And I think most importantly, lack of judgment and total acceptance. And I'm not saying that identical twins don't argue. They do. They're people like anybody else. But it's a relationship that I think goes beyond any other on average. When identical twins marry, sometimes they tell each other things that their spouses don't know. And that can create some marital conflict on occasion. But it's the kind of relationship that is so selfless. I'll give you an example that you may remember those Olympic skiers, Phil and Steve Mayer from the 60s, but at any rate, they were slalom experts. And when one of them turned in what was clearly the gold medal performance, he turned to his brother and said, here's what you have to do to beat me. And it's like a, a, a glory, a win is shared. The, the, the uh, borders between them are really quite blurred. And I'm not saying that's every pair, but it's most of the pairs are that way. It, it's rather surprising at first when you encounter it, but I, I've i encountered it often enough. And you see it so much in the twin athletes. Really, it's very, very striking. And I've also done a study on the loss of a twin among people who have grown up together. And I will say two very interesting findings. One is that identical twin loss is a little more devastating than fraternal twin loss. And that mirrors what you see in their relationships. But what's two other things, 
the loss of a twin is rated as more devastating, more grief intensive than the loss of a non-twin relative, including a mother, a father, non-twin siblings. But when it comes to spouse, it's equal. And we had to think of a spouse as, you know, the most important relationship in our lives. But for twins, it's right up there with the co-twin. Fortunately, I have not had enough twins to look at the loss of a child. And I suspect that that would be, of course, a devastating loss. But I wonder, I wonder how that would compare to the loss of an identical twin. It'd be interesting to find out, but I hope I never find out. <laughs> I, I am interested to hear more about what the experiences were like emotionally for the twins in the study. I know you mentioned some of them, but what they felt and what they did when they did meet each other. I mean, what was that like? In the beginning, it's kind of total glee, at least between the children. It's it's total glee. It's amazing to discover similarities, some differences. Suddenly, you know, they have something they never had before. For the parents, it's devastating. The parents feel that they were lied to and they were taken advantage of a very well-reputed agency like Louise Wise was. It was the premier agency for families wishing to adopt Jewish babies. So that was one thing. But but over time, there, there developed rifts, as I said, because there are, they don't have a shared social history. But the twins variously experience anger, disappointment, sadness, grief, the whole range of emotions that somebody played with their lives purely in the name of science. They feel like they were treated like lab rats with no sense or respect for their humanity. And I think they were right. And some of the twins, in particular the triplets, refer to this as Nazi science. And you can say, well, it's not Nazi science for a number of reasons. And I, I would agree it's not because these were twins who were well taken care of and they were, you know, they were loved. I mean, the parents adored them. But if I were one of those twins, I might be inclined to say that because I'd feel like my life was tampered with and knowingly so, knowingly so. That's the difficult part right here. So how often is it the case that twins who were reared apart and knowing about each other, when they meet each other as adults, how often is it the, is it the case that they, they then bond and carry on as closely or as near closely as twins that were reared together? I would say that at the Minnesota study of twins raised apart, most of the twins, the majority of identicals and fraternals, were absolutely thrilled to have met one another. After all, think of what it gives you. It gives you insights into your medical history that you never could have had before. It gives you a sibling. It gives you in-laws, nieces and nephews. It expands your family horizons in ways you would never know. And identical twins are in the unique position of seeing themselves in a life unlived. You know, all of us can imagine how our life might be if we had taken a different class in college or gone to a different college or married somebody else or or taken a different job, but they are in the unique position to actually see that, to actually see that. Fraternal twins, that's really not the case because they have different abilities and personalities, things of that sort. So, um, but I would say that most twins have been gratified to have met and most have been absolutely overjoyed. Now, one of the twin pairs we studied in Minnesota, Mark and Jerry, they were volunteer firefighters, both of them were, and they grew up in different New Jersey cities. And they were occasionally mistaken for one another, but never thought much about it. So when one of them got married at about the age of 40 or so, 
the other twin just left the relationship, just felt jealous, could not handle it, and moved to Arizona. And so that put a complete rift in the relationship. Years went by. In February, I think it was, January, February of this year, I got a phone call from the brother of the Arizona twin to tell me that his brother had passed away. So I called Jerry, the one in New Jersey, and I said, look, I have something difficult to tell you, and I told him. And I could see that even though, you know, they badmouthed each other, I mean, they had no contact. He was affected. And then I was on Facebook, and he wrote something like, for years, there were two of us walking the earth, and now there's only one of us. Rest in peace, my brother. I was very moved by that. So it shows you that even despite this separation, there was something very profound there. Sure. Do, do you think that, I guess to return to the question of science, what then is the ethical way to conduct a, a study involving twins that were reared apart? Well, at the University of Minnesota, that's the one I was involved in, and I can speak to that most clearly. Some of these twins were separated during the war. Some of these twins were separated, as I said, a mother died in childbirth, her family couldn't raise two twins. So some of these were twins who never knew they were twins, met by accident as adults. So we never separated twins. We never separated them, never. If anything, we brought them together. And it was important for us to have them at the same time. That was kind of incentive to bring them to Minnesota at the same time. So I think that is the ethical way when we studied them as adults. Now, the most important thing is to let twins know about one another sure. and to have contact. Now, I am conducting a study of young Chinese twins who were indirectly separated because of the one-child policy in China. And so some of them were adopted by different families in the U.S., some of them different countries around the world. And the parents have come to me, or I've contacted them when I've learned about the case in the newspaper, and they've participated with the full consent and understanding. The families get together from time to time. And see, that's okay with me. I'm not going to say don't meet. That's fine. I keep track of their rec- of their meetings, and I can see, are the twins who meet more often more alike than the ones who meet less often? I mean, that's, that's vital information. That's vital information. And you don't need to purposely separate twins. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. You know, we're almost out of time, but I'm dying to know what you're working on these days and what you've got coming up next. Okay, well, I'm going to talk about three things. One is a BBC production, a film, a half-hour documentary that will be on the air in June of this year, and it's all about deliberately divided and the different issues that that raises, so I'm very excited about that, and I'll be in the film. And then I'm working on two new books. Uh, One of them is based on a very high-profile case out of Los Angeles that almost reached the Supreme Court, and just briefly, it involves two gay men who married, who met in Israel, One was Israeli, one was American. They wanted to marry and have a family. They could not marry in Israel. They could not marry in the U.S. in 2011. So they went to Canada, where you could marry in 2005. So they married, and eventually they had twin boys through a surrogate, and they wanted to relocate to Los Angeles, where one of the partners had come from. And the U.S. consulate gave them 
all kinds of problems. This is the U.S. consulate in Toronto saying that because one of the twins had a Canadian mother and an Israeli father, he was denied citizenship. So this raised into question all kinds of things about immigration policy. And when I learned about this case, I knew that it had four timely themes. It had family, it had gay marriage, it had immigration policy, and it had twinship. Those twins might have been separated. So that's the book I'm working on now. I'm going to talk about the life histories, how they got together. And I've written two chapters, actually, and I'm on my third. And I'm going to talk about the immigration policy and the twinship and the resolution of the case. And my second book is actually an annotated photography book. Hmm. And in 1985, I went to Poland with the twins who survived the Holocaust and the Mengele experiments done at Auschwitz. I went there for the 40th anniversary liberation or 40th anniversary of the liberation of the camps. And then I went on to Yad Vashem for the public hearing on Mengele's war crimes. And I took probably 200 photographs that have been sitting in my closet since 1985. During the pandemic, I pulled them out and decided I have got to publish these. And so I'm working with a, a small Jewish press, which is excellent. And they fully support the project. And I'm about halfway through that now, too. So it's an annotated photo collection. And I will be giving some talks on that in um, the coming year. And where can people find, where can people watch the documentary? The documentary will be on 200 different stations around the world on BBC World News. Great, great. And what's it called again? We don't have a title for it yet. Oh, okay. (laughs) I will say that... um, I love working with the BBC and they recently did a five minute video with me on nature nurture. And that is available on BBC real. And I suspect that this documentary will also be on BBC real, but will also be on TV stations, 200 around the world in June. So people should be who are interested should be looking out on BBC real for the documentary and also keeping tabs on the release of your two upcoming books. Right. And I have a, a website that I update fairly frequently. Shall I read out the Yes, URL? please. Yeah. It's Dr. So D-R, Nancy Siegel, that's S-E-G-A-L, Dr. Nancy Siegel Twins.org. And I update fairly frequently and I will post links and things of that sort on that particular website. Great. Thank you for that. And Dr. Siegel, thank you again for coming on the show. It's, it's a fascinating book on a fascinating and a very emotional topic. Um, And it's great work what you've done. Thank you for coming to talk to us about it. Thank you so much.